0: This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment by moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how to help our kids who have ADHD at school, how to help them um, get accommodations or services that they might need and other supports like that. So let's just kind of start at the beginning. So your child was just diagnosed with ADHD, let's say, or your child was diagnosed quite a while ago, and they're still struggling in school. It, You know, treatment and medication isn't a magic bullet. So if your child is taking medication, but they're still struggling in school, that doesn't necessarily mean that their medication isn't helping them. It could very well just mean that medication alone is not enough to help them to succeed at school. Um, and we have to remember, you know, let's start at the beginning here. Schools are designed for kids who are neurotypical. Mass education in the United States is completely designed um, as kind of a system of conformity and the way in which they teach and the way in which they measure how much a student is learning, or how well a student is learning, is all based on a quote normal child, someone who is neurotypical. And our kids with ADHD are neuroatypical, they are not um, that kid that our education system is designed for, and so. They're automatically, the second they walk in that door at school, they're automatically kind of set up to fail, to be quite honest. Now, there are certainly schools out there that are better, um, maybe more cutting edge or better for kids with disabilities. There are certainly specialized schools that are entirely for kids with disabilities. But what I'm talking about today is your general public Um, education, your general public schools in your area. And so we have these kids that we're doing everything we can for at home. We're getting them treatment, medication, therapy, OT, whatever it might be, but they're still struggling in school. They are still not succeeding. And what you have to look at is that those neurotypical expectations that the schools and the teachers and the administrators are placing on your child don't match up with your child's capability. If you think of it, kind of visualize it as a balance scale, the capability is going to be Much less weighty than those particular expectations because they don't align with the way our kids' brains work. Um, And that can be for several reasons. You know, one is motivation. Our kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD are motivated by interest and urgency. They are not motivated by importance, like a neurotypical brain. So you're sending a kid into school, a neurotypical kid, and you're saying, this is important. You have to do what we're asking. And they do it because it's important. You send a kid with ADHD into school, and you say, this is important, you have to do it. And their brain can't use that to then be able to do it like a neurotypical brain can. You know, I am neurotypical in a lot of ways. I do have anxiety, especially social anxiety. Um, But for the most part, I was a neurotypical student. And so if somebody said, hey, this is important, then I did the work, you know, I was kind of in fear of getting in trouble. You know, I was that straight and narrow kid in school for a long time. And so, that importance was a trigger for my brain. That same exact importance is not a trigger for the ADHD brain. And yes, it may at first kind of trigger them it might give them some ability for initiation on to, on a task but very quickly that will fizzle out and they will not be able to keep following through with that same level of engagement and it's not because they don't care it's not because they're lazy it's not because they're stupid it's just because their brain isn't Triggered in that way, the way that our general education is set up in the U.S. And so I think it's super, super important for parents to realize that from the very beginning. That aha for you then puts you in the right mindset to be able to be very helpful for your child, to then see that. They're not doing their work, but that doesn't mean that they don't care about doing well. You know, my son is a freshman in high school this year. He has the worst grades he's ever had. He has probably, I would say, one of the most high levels of accommodation that he's ever had. And it's not enough because it's not really addressing the issues and he wants more than anything to do well you guys he really wants to do well and as Ross Green tells us kids do well if they can not when they can not if they want to but if they can so when kids are struggling in school that's a signal that something is off Expectations and capability are not matching up. And my friend Sarah Whalen taught me a while back, um, who have had, I've had here on the podcast a few times talking about behaviors, communication, and um, stuff like that. And what she taught me was that when the gap between capability and expectations is super high, that's when you see crisis behaviors, So, for example, when my son was in sixth grade, he was in the world's worst charter school ever for kids with special needs, and it was a brand new school, sounded great on paper, had special ed staff and and a teacher, and still, all they thought was that he could do better. You can do better, we know you can do it again. And so that led to some severe anxiety and crisis behaviors for the first and only time in his life. And this was almost four years ago. He was self harming. And he was self harming at school, because that environment was so awful for him, it made him feel so stressed, and so bad, that he was willing to harm himself in an effort to be able to leave for the day. And that is crisis guys. I don't know how else to define crisis behavior for you. Self-harm is kind of the epitome of crisis behaviors. And there are certainly others, but that's the one that I have for this example. And so, you know, I could not, no matter how much I advocated for him, no matter how much I tried to educate the teachers and staff at the school, I could not make them accommodate him and understand him in, in the ways that he needed to be able to succeed. And so, of course, I pulled him out of that school um, and I actually ended up filing a state education department complaint against them because they refused to um, kind of change the education for him in their school based on the way that he is able to learn and succeed. So anyhow, that just goes to show you that there are lots of red flags that parents that we need to be looking for at school. And when you get to that crisis behavior point, that red flag is screaming at you that something has to change. But let's go back to kind of the basics of getting help at school, what it might look like, um, that need for a lot of kids who aren't at the crisis behavior point. So if your child's homework is taking a really long time, much longer than their neurotypical peers, that means they need accommodations. If your child is... refusing to do work struggling to get it done and compensating by just refusing to do it or if they can't get started they just can't initiate but once they get started they do okay with assignments those are all signals that your child needs accommodations at school if your child comes home in a bad mood that likely signals that things aren't going well at school And of course, that's if they come home in a bad mood consistently and frequently, not just one time. Um... There's so many things. If their grades are bad, that's kind of the obvious signal that everyone waits for, but your child can have straight A's and still need accommodations and help at school because it's not just about the grades and the testing performance. It's not just about that piece that's academic performance. It's also about behavior it's also about social and emotional health and well-being while they are at school. If your child is getting straight A's but has behavior outbursts that get him in trouble, that's a sign that they probably need accommodations at school. If your child... Um, is getting straight A's, but is upset all the time, doesn't have anyone to hang out with at school, um, gets bullied, struggles with social interactions in one way or another, they need some accommodations to help them with social um, skills and interaction at school. These are all signs that they need help because for me, the way I define school performance and the way that I've been told by other advocates that you should define school um, success is academic, social, and emotional or mental health well-being. All three of those things are key. Um A while back, Rob Tudisco, who is an educational attorney and um, also an adult with ADHD, he writes a lot for Attitude Magazine and um, for Chad's Attention Magazine as well, he taught me a while back that you should use not just a report card when you are trying to get accommodations or trying to show the school why, why your child needs accommodations, you use the school school handbook as well. So those handbooks really define every aspect of school expectations um, outside of passing their classes or passing their grade. And so all of that needs to be considered, that big picture, when you're determining and the the school team is determining if your child needs or deserves accommodations at school or services at school and obviously, you know, kids stick out when they're behind grade level in a subject, right? So if your kid is two years behind grade level in reading, he's in third grade, but he's barely reading on a first grade level, the schools pick up on that kind of stuff. They will wave their own red flag and say, hey, you know, we think that your child may need some extra support in the area of reading. But When it isn't that cut and dried, when it isn't that black and white and clear cut, then our kids tend to fall through the cracks. And I'll tell you, you know, part of it, especially when it's outside that realm of being behind grade level, or failing classes. A lot of it has to do with the knowledge and education of the teachers and administrators. So many of them don't really understand ADHD. They don't really understand how pervasive and overall impactful it is on school success in general. Um, You know, we just had an IEP meeting a few months ago that didn't go very well. We had a new curriculum director for our district, and she really didn't know anything about my son. And so she came in with his file, which I kid you not, was 10 to 12 inches tall sitting on the conference table. But she didn't really know everything about him and what was going on. She tried to peruse the file and then have this meeting about his needs and what was happening. And so, of course, it didn't go well. I got riled up because they were saying, oh, well, he doesn't need this and he doesn't need that. And I'm like, "Um, yes, he does. You don't understand. And one of the things that she really didn't understand was executive functioning deficits. And in a follow-up meeting later, she told me, I researched executive functioning deficits. I didn't know how that impacts a student. I didn't know that was part of ADHD. And I'm like, wow, because this woman has taught special ed for, I think she told me, 27 years and still didn't understand executive function. Um, A friend of mine here locally just asked me yesterday, the school said that their son didn't need an IEP even though he has professionally documented executive functioning deficits because they don't get it. They just don't understand it because when teachers go through school and certification, they are not required to learn about ADHD, it is absolutely not a requirement. And so you will have a lot of teachers who just don't know the facts and they don't know the nuances. And those nuances, I think, are where our kids get so tripped up so often because those nuances can lead to anxiety, stress, um, lashing out due to anxiety or stress, um, not trying on an assignment because they don't think that they can do well. That's a trap that my son has been falling in this year. Um, if he starts on something and he doesn't know the first one or two questions or he doesn't know how to solve those first two math problems, he just gives up. He just pretends to finish it and basically gets almost a zero unless he guessed really well. And that, you know, looks like laziness, does it not? On the surface, that totally looks like laziness. But knowing my son, knowing his diagnoses, knowing how they affect him, I know that that's part of his disabilities. And it's also part of his learned experience you know in life a lot of times he has not done well on school stuff so after a while when you don't get the support you need and you keep failing no matter how hard you try you stop trying right I mean if I was experiencing the same thing at some point I would say okay I'm never going to do well at this so I give up and that's what a lot of our kids do especially in the upper grades you know younger kids are i think more naturally resilient they don't know as much they don't have as much lived experience yet so it can be a little bit easier so let's get back on our track to the process of getting these accommodations or an IEP so it couldn't be a 504 plan which is part of the ADA and um, that is typically easier to get, but it is also not as legally enforceable. Then there's what we know as an IEP, which stands for Individualized Education Plan. That is when your child qualifies for special education. That's when they need both services and accommodations. The IEP has a much more robust law behind it, and it does have parent um, recourse built within that law. Unfortunately, it takes a good bit of money to follow through on that recourse because you basically have to file um, court proceedings against the school if you don't agree and and you can't see eye to eye. So it is cost prohibitive, financially prohibitive for a lot of families out there, um, including our own. There are probably in the last 10 years, I would say there's at least three times that I would have filed due process had I had the means. Um, And so unfortunately, you know, that that's not a possibility for everyone. Now, there are some states who do offer free educational advocate services. And if you are in one of those states, or if you have a local nonprofit that offers that, absolutely take advantage of it. It will help you navigate the law, navigate the process, the red tape within the schools. It can be a huge, huge benefit for you and for your child in this process. So let's go back, you have an idea, you've seen some red flags, you think your child needs at least some accommodations in the classroom um, or at school in general. So, your first step is to write a letter in writing, folks. And request formally an evaluation. And I will link up in the show notes a sample letter for you to follow. Attitude Magazine has offered a great one on their website, and I will link that up. And what this letter basically does is state I'm writing to request an evaluation for, you know, Joe Smith. Um, and this is why. And you list some of the reasons why you have concerns about their education. It could be he's behind grade level in reading. He um, is struggling with behavior in the classroom. He um, is being bullied and having issues with um, other students socially. And. Um, You know, it could be English, math, science, um, PE. It could be sensory issues. All of these things are grounds for you to be able to request that evaluation and should be the signal for the school to grant that request and evaluate. Now, once you have made that written request, you send that to the principal, um, sometimes the guidance counselor, and a lot of advocates will suggest that you go ahead and send it to the head of special ed for your school board um, I have only used the head of special ed for my school board when I was having problems and couldn't kind of work through the processes and get to a place where we felt comfortable with um, the school staff that was assigned kind of to our IEP team for my son. But um, a lot of advocates say, just go ahead and CC them on that letter. It does need to be in writing and you do need to know when they received it for kind of speed purposes, I always send an email with red receipt requested so that I get an email back when they open that email and I can know the date and time that it was opened. Um If you're going to mail it, do signature required with delivery so that you have that date and time when they receive notification of your request. And that becomes important because in the law, you have some timelines that the school must meet. So they get your letter and they say, yes, we agree, we'll evaluate your child, In the federal law in the United States, they then have 60 days to do that evaluation and meet with you to discuss the outcome and plan next steps if there are any next steps. That clock is very important, and they have to meet that requirement by law, and most schools do whatever they can to meet it. Um, That seems to be one of the pieces of the law that they really try to meet. And so now the clock is ticking and they're going to evaluate your child. They're going to pull them out and do different sorts of testing with them in the school. Um, some is administrated by special ed personnel. Some is administrated by or administered by um, the school psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, and, and then they all come together and they create a report. And then they have a recommendation based on their findings of whether your child does meet the criteria to be included in special ed and have an IEP or if your child does not. So then if your child does not meet the requirement for the IEP... You have a couple of options. A lot of times you'll get a 504 plan. You'll have an additional meeting. You'll talk about how um, the disability impacts education negatively, and you'll set some accommodations to address those things and try to even the playing field for your child at school. The other option is that you request an independent evaluation, often referred to as an IEE, and the school has to pay for that. So if you disagree, you can request that IEE again in writing, and then they have to bring in an outside source, um, a neutral party to do that evaluation again and look at those results and consider the new results if they're any different. Um, I think that maybe 20, 30% of the time, probably 20 parents are having to use that piece of the law and request that IEE. Um, What I would say to you to make sure that all of your concerns are really considered, when you write that letter requesting the evaluation, make sure you list every single area you're concerned about because that is likely the list that those staff members are going to use to determine which criteria, um, I mean, which rating scales, which um, assessments they are going to use with your child for that evaluation. So if you're really concerned about their reading, and they're not, you know, really behind grade level maybe they're towards the beginning of third grade when it's now the end of third grade they may not test for reading if you don't say something about it so be very specific in your requests if it's social issues say social issues in that letter Um, and so now they're evaluating and I'll tell you 60 school days seems like an eternity when your child is struggling but it's the law and it takes a while for them to coordinate different testing, different personnel to come in and work with the student like the psychologist or psychiatrist. And so you know, a lot of times the school OT will work with them on an evaluation and then putting all that information together because all of these folks have a large list of students on their roster that they are either already working with in special ed or that they are evaluating or both. So it is a lengthy process, unfortunately, but just keep track of that time frame and make sure that you do get that meeting of the results within those 60 school days. So at that point, let's say your child does meet the requirements in the opinion of your IEP team that evaluated, and so you're going to draft a new IEP. This is a whole process in and of itself. There is a long IEP form. Um, I think they vary a little bit from state to state. Ours, I think, is around 15 pages. And then the more goals and accommodations you have, the longer that document gets. So it can be a really overwhelming process. And it's something that most parents don't really understand. And that's why I suggest if you have access to an advocate, use an advocate. Um... So now you're going to sit down in this meeting. It could be at the time that they gave you the results or they might schedule another meeting after that to draft the IEP. And what needs to happen in this meeting is that you come in with the knowledge of what they have found, so any strengths and weaknesses in your child that they found in their evaluations. You come in with any extra information that you might have from your own private evaluations, and then you come in with your own parent concerns and what you feel like needs to be addressed and some ideas on what might help to alleviate some of those struggles for your child. And all of those things then need to be discussed and considered, and as much agreement as there is put into the IEP document for your child. This is an individualized education plan. This plan should be 110% specific to your child's needs. The law says it doesn't matter about finances and budget of the school system it doesn't matter you know what services they currently offer if your child needs something else some other program they the law says they have to provide it now i will tell you schools use all the things that they shouldn't to deny services and accommodations especially when it costs them money it's just um You know, an unfortunate fact. And again, in order to fight that, you're looking at filing due process, you're looking at hiring an attorney to fight that. And so, you know, the schools kind of win in that instance, in a lot of cases, which is very unfortunate, but you just have to keep pushing and fighting and advocating for your child. So now you're sitting in this meeting and you know you have a pretty good picture of your child's strengths and weaknesses and what they really need help on, where they're falling behind or where they're struggling. Now is the time that you decide what goals they need and what accommodations they need. So the goals are the goal for progress in specific areas. For instance, my son has dysgraphia, which is a handwriting and a written expression disorder. He has a goal that he will be able to meet the right now ninth grade um, rubric for English language arts in four out of five instances. Um, It's a much more detailed goal than that, but that's the meat of it. And so he gets services to help him to improve and try to meet that goal. And the services are where you really differ from between 504 plan and IEP, in my experience and my understanding. So, now you know that your child needs some help in that area, not just an accommodation. So, for my son, in that instance, he is in inclusion classes, which means he has a special ed teacher that comes into language arts every day and supports the special ed students in that classroom along with the regular ed teacher In elementary school, um, that would look more like being pulled out and getting maybe 30 minutes or an hour every day or two for um, some help in those areas with a special education teacher. So, you know, based on your child's age and grade, that might look a little differently how you get that service, but behind every goal, there has to be something that the school is offering that helps your child improve in the effort to reach that goal then you have a separate section in the iep for accommodations and you list accommodations for every single subject or class and accommodations can be a wide variety of things one of the accommodations my son has for that dysgraphia is that he is allowed to use an ipad to complete worksheets in the classroom and all the teachers have to allow it and support it um you know, typing his work. That is the example of an accommodation. So you can kind of understand the difference. Services are an extra level of kind of teaching or support and accommodations are just kind of changing some expectation almost um, or giving your child assistive technology to help them overcome obstacles and have the opportunity to succeed. And accommodations can be, I mean, there's hundreds of them, and they, they aren't based on diagnosis, they're based on what your child is struggling with. So if your child is struggling with reading, an accommodation might be that they get one of the reading guides that helps them keep their place on the page. Um a service for that might be that they get pulled out and they work with a special ed teacher 30 minutes every day to improve their reading skills. And, and working with that special educator, they might do different programs um, that are designed to help struggling students in the areas that um, they're getting that service for, like reading. It just really depends. Sometimes it's just that extra one-on-one instruction and sometimes it's actual you know, programs and tools that are designed for kids who struggle in reading or math or writing and what have you. So when you're trying to figure out what accommodations you want to request for your child or what would be appropriate, you really have to have that list again of exactly how they're struggling. And that's how that IEP should be and the 504 plan should be um, kind of created. It should be based on the exact specific areas and tasks that your child is struggling with. Because the goal of both is to kind of even the playing field for your child so that they have the same opportunity for learning and education. And you know, the law doesn't define academic success. They leave it up to the IEP teams. Um, What I heard in our IEP meetings this year was that C was a success. She gave him a long, um, a long kind of lecture on how C is average and C is good, which of course made me irate. But, you know. This is how some schools operate. For me, a kid with a gifted IQ, which my son has, should be able to get A's and B's in school. It may take a whole lot of service and accommodation, but he should have that opportunity too. And unfortunately, right now, he does not have enough support and accommodation to do that. But we are working toward it, of course. So You know, don't let schools tell you that your child is doing well in their report card so they don't need accommodations or they don't qualify for a 504 plan or an IEP. That is not necessarily true. Now, if your child has ADHD, but they're really doing okay in school in every aspect, they're not stressed out, they're not anxious, they're doing well socially, they're participating, they're getting good grades, they're on grade level and everything, then yeah, your kid might not need accommodations or a 504 plan or an IEP because they are really designed for those kids who need an extra... Bit of support and assistance in order to have an opportunity like their neurotypical peers at success. So it's for the kids whose disabilities are having a negative impact on learning or on the school experience. And if that's not your child, then you really don't need to request an evaluation or 504 plan or an IEP. Now, let me tell you, your child can get all the way through elementary school and do great and then hit middle school and the wheel's completely fall off the bus so don't think just because what I'm telling you means that your child doesn't need these things now that doesn't mean they won't in the future they're constantly changing and their environment changes a lot every year they get a new teacher every you know a few years they move on to middle school and then they move on to high school and there's lots of changes you then you have hormones and puberty and so this is always kind of a moving target your your plan to help your child with school success is going to ebb and flow based on how things change from year to year so keep that in mind that just because they don't need accommodations now does not mean that they won't in the future um and so here's, here's kind of the process in a nutshell to sum everything up for you. You think your child needs help in school in one way or another. You write that letter in writing, delivery, um, you know, something to say this is when they received it and that they received it. And that letter lists all of your concerns, academic, social, emotional, behavior, And then you either move on to be evaluated in that 60 days or the school denies the need for evaluation and you circle back and see what else you might need to do there, whether you need to hire an advocate or um, something like that, or just accept that maybe they'll do a 504 plan without the evaluation and then once the evaluation is over, you know whether or not your child qualifies for an IEP, a 504 plan, or nothing, um, based on what the school determines. And that is, you know, an, a quote, IEP team decision. The IEP team is defined in the law as um, having a parent as part of that team. The problem with that is that the parent counts as one and then all the other school staff that ends up being part of that team totally um, overwhelms the parent's input. You know, if the school doesn't agree with the parent, but all the school people agree with each other, then the school gets to make that choice without really considering your input or listening or hearing you. So, you know, there are a lot of flaws in the system. I'm not going to kid you, it's really tough. But just knowing the basics can get you started can get you from having a child who's upset about school who doesn't want to go having a child who is spending three or four nights, three or four hours on homework in elementary school, um, fighting with a child to do the work, you know, these things can all be mitigated and should be mitigated when your child has a disability. So, you're going to go to the show notes which you can find at parentingadhdandautism.com/034. This is episode 34. And there I will link to you the uh, sample letter to request an evaluation and I'll put some other really relevant links um, as to the process of evaluation, the differences between 504 plan and IEP and um, maybe some sample accommodations. There are lots of sample accommodation lists out there but you just have to take those lists and then match them up With where your child is struggling. There isn't one blanket list of accommodations that are great for kids with ADHD. It doesn't work that way because our kids are all a little bit different in their struggles with ADHD. So definitely go to the show notes, get those documents, and then you can move forward. And if you have one of those documents or you are going through an evaluation and you're still struggling to get the school on board with you, that's the time to start looking for that educational advocate, whether you have to hire one and pay them or you can find one in a nonprofit or provided by... Um, The state, it's definitely a good idea. It will help you tremendously in those efforts for your child. And above all, you know, make sure your child knows that you have their back. You're in their corner and you're fighting for them and that you understand because so many people in their lives don't get it. And so many people in the schools, unfortunately, don't get it. And so your child desperately needs that backing and that validation from you in order to be able to maintain some self-esteem and keep trying and keep fighting for themselves. So that concludes this episode. Let me know in the show notes. You can comment if you have any questions or if you have any other resources that you would like to share with our audience. That would be a great way to do them. And I know that other parents would greatly appreciate that. So with that, I will see you on the next episode of the Parenting ADHD podcast. Take good care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, Autism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.